All right, while everybody is finding their seats. The only announcement is that due to weather modifications, since I announced this on Tuesday night, see, I just, just keep my mouth shut. <laughs> that it um, looks like there's going to be two, two lines of showers that move through tomorrow night, one between 6 and 9 and the other around 6 in the morning on Saturday. So I decided rather than just not do anything, we would just go out to Orlando's on Saturday morning uh, for some training at the range. So we will, we will do that. So that we'll get out there around 8 or 8.30 or so. That is the only announcement. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, prepared to study God's word. And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this evening just thankful for the good day that we've had today, for another day that we can live and serve you and learn your word and let God the Holy Spirit use it to uh, sanctify us, to mature us, and to strengthen us. Father, we pray that we might continue to have this freedom in this nation. We know that there are those in positions of power, whether they are serving in the Senate or the House, or whether they are in uh, positions in the judiciary who will stand firm. But, Father, we pray that you will protect us from the onslaught, the attacks of those who hate Christianity and hate the truth. Father, we pray that we may continue to respond in a manner that demonstrates grace as well as stands firm for the truth. And that, Father, that we may... Uh, be lights in the midst of this wicked and twisted generation. And we pray that tonight, as we study your word, you would help us to understand the significance of what we're studying in terms of our spiritual lives in this church age. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Second Peter. And we're back here. It's been a couple of weeks because of... Um, uh, I had was under the weather a little bit last Thursday night, so we had to cancel class. But I wanted everybody to watch that particular uh, video that we showed last week as as backdrop to what is going on in um, in Second Peter. And so uh, we're going to continue tonight. What I want to do to begin with is just a little bit of review because we've gone through the three examples that Peter uses to, uh, to illustrate the fact that God delivers believers in times of crisis and God brings judgment on those who are the ungodly, those who are unbelievers, and the certainty of that. That is the thrust of what is, what is being illustrated. And that comes out when we get down to verse 9, which states the principle, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly, that means believers, out of testing and to uh, reserve the unjust, and contextually that's the unsaved, 
under punishment for the day of judgment. So that's that's the point here. But I want to go back. There are some there are some difficult interpretive issues in this chapter. And there's not a whole lot that's written upon Second uh, Peter. You have a few commentaries, very few, uh, really, on Second Peter, and about eighty percent of them aren't really worth a whole lot because they're written from a uh, liberal or neo-orthodox perspective. So you don't get a lot of help in the commentary tradition or in other things, and then you get into issues a number of other issues where there's disagreements and even people who are in the same basic theological tradition will disagree on some of these issues. Who's, who's believers, who's not believers, who's saved, who's not saved, you know, all of these kinds of things. And so I'm having to uh, spend a lot of time you know, trying to trace down, track down various arguments and issues and relate to those things. And we really don't get into that in, until we get down to about verse 12, but it's important to to make sure everything flows contextually. That's really the most important thing. And so the theme that I'm focusing on tonight is the, is not only the what I put in as a title, The Certainty of Deliverance and Destruction. But why? What is the significance of God allowing these things to take place in human history? You know, even last night I was with some people and that question came up, why does God allow these things to happen? And so this is your pop quiz for the evening. Why does God allow evil? Why does God allow pandemics? Why does God allow suffering? That's your question. What? Where would you go? Where would be the first place you would go? Better be Job. You go straight to Job and, and, and God's answer to Job, which is, if I told you, you couldn't understand it, so just trust me. You don't have the capacity for it. But because God is a righteous judge, and because he loves us, we know it's the best thing. And so we just have to trust him. And that's where people get in trouble, because they really don't want to do that. So we look at this. I just want to go back and give us a little fly over the structure of the chapter, uh, the first part of the chapter. They, there's three parts uh, that we looked at at the beginning, and... They are are four parts. First of all, the certainty of false teachers and their destructive heresies. And that starts in 2.1. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. That is a first statement. So that is a, a reality. There were false teachers among the people. The people refer to Israel. It's past tense, so it's referring back to what was going on in the Old Testament, that there were uh, false prophets in the Old Testament, but in the future there will be false teachers. It's important to note that distinction between prophets in the past because that was the way in which God revealed his word in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, the canon is closed at the end, by the end of the first century. And so the focal point in the church age is teaching, learning the word of God. And when we look at the pastoral epistles in First and Second Timothy and, and uh, Titus, one of the key words is teaching, 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 instruction. And so what are they teaching? They're teaching the scriptures. And so that is... That is really the, the most important thing is to go to the scripture for, for your authority. So this is where it starts, this warning that false teachers will come up among you, that is, in your midst, and they will secretly, that is, in a uh, very uh, uh, secret way, bring in these, in a covert way, bring in these uh, destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and they will bring upon themselves 
uh, swift destruction. Now you have in the King James, you have destruction there uh, twice, and those are actually different different words. But in that first phrase, it's destructive heresies. Now what's interesting is that one of the arguments that is brought up is this word heresy is related is the word that is used in Acts on several occasions to refer to the Sadducees that are the Pharisees, and it's translated sect. But it also refers to the sect of the Nazarenes. So it's not a word at that time that has the connotation that heresy has for us today. Today we have the word heresy that as it developed in church history, it came to be restricted to those who were... uh, teaching something that was contrary to scripture, usually restricted to the more extreme statements, denying the person of Christ, denying the work of Christ, denying the Trinity, denying the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And of course, in the Middle Ages, it was applied to anyone who disagreed with the authority of, of the Pope in Rome. And that was the reason that they condemned John Wycliffe about 30 years after he died. They condemned him at the Council of Constance. They also condemned Jan Hus, the Bohemian. Um, That's where he lived. It's not a term of slang for some sort of beatnik today. A Bohemian, that's Czechoslovakian. That's today we call it Czechoslovakia, but he taught in Prague, and that was the area, and he was an evangelist. And so uh, he is declared to be a heretic, and then they burned him at the stake. And they went to England, and they had them dig up Wycliffe's body, and then they burned it, and then they scattered the ashes in, uh, in the river. Now, why did they do that? Because in the limited knowledge of those who can't comprehend omnipotence, they didn't think that God would be able to put him all back together again in the resurrection. And so by digging him up and burning his bones and everything, well, that would guarantee he would not get resurrected. So those kinds of things were going on, and that was what they were going to charge Uh, Luther with, but uh, God had other plans. So Luther was not, uh, well, he was actually excommunicated, but they never got to that point because by then he was so popular in Germany that they weren't, the Roman Catholic Church didn't have a a chance that they were going to be able to, uh, to punish him. But that narrow sense in which we use the word heresy today is not what it meant in the in biblical times what is the important word there is that word destructive and it indicates that it, it would indicate teaching that would uh, cause you to spend eternity in the lake of fire it would be destructive of the gospel and then in verse 2 peter warns many will follow their destructive ways now that is a repetition of the word used previously Uh, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. So when you have false teachers, and we have a lot of false teachers today, and I'm going to give some examples, and we're going to go through some of the things that are going on today. I'm I'm not going to spend uh, weeks on it, but I want to just expose a couple of things to you so that you can wake up and realize what's going on. It's, It's like everything's falling apart, folks. I mean, we thought evangelicalism was screwed up 10 years ago. Well, that was just the the beginning. It is so bad today, and the things that, that some of these leaders of historically conservative denominations have been saying in order to be culturally acceptable i.e. joining the woke crowd, which is really a code word for Marxism, and they are... Uh, they want to go get right along with it so that they will be accepted. They think that somehow this will make them attractive to unbelievers. So it's just they are uh, that they are perfect examples of the way of truth being blasphemed today. And some of these people come right out of Houston, Texas, 
And at one time, maybe 30 years ago, were relatively on target, but today you just cannot imagine it. So you have the, the what happens when people follow these these false teachers is that it brings it brings shame to the body of Christ and the gospel and Christianity is ridiculed and that's the idea of blasphemy there and that's what you you hear on the street today people have these questions because they have no idea what what Christianity is. And so uh, verse 3 says, by covetousness. So you see that one of the primary motivations is going to be money. And we certainly have that with the whole health and wealth and prosperity gospel movement that has really gone uh, far beyond anything that uh, you could ever imagine today. Uh, They will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle. Now, that's an important phrase because we tend to look out there and we say, why doesn't God do anything? Are you omniscient? Can you see everybody and everything? How do you know that God isn't doing anything? Their, their destruction has not been... He's, God is giving them enough rope to hang themselves as he did with the Canaanites. That's We've talked about that in Judges, how... Why does God feel it necessary to entirely annihilate and eradicate the Canaanites from the face of the earth? Because God dealt with them in grace for over 400 years as he told Noah, I mean Abraham, he told Abraham that that he's going to give this land to Abraham's descendants, but not yet because uh, the sins of the Amorites and the Canaanites hasn't reached full fruition. He's going to give them enough grace so that they will completely condemn themselves and demonstrate their worthiness of their of their judgment. And that's what God is doing. He just he is not idle. He's not ignoring it, but he is dealing with them in grace and giving them enough rope to hang themselves. And so that leads to self-destruction. So that's the that's really the main idea that covers and governs the whole chapter is this warning about the the uh, false teachers, and then you have the examples of divine discipline that are given in four through eight for the purpose of demonstrating that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations or testing and to reserve the unjust or the unsaved under punishment for the day of judgment. And then there's going to be a description of these false teachers beginning in verse 12. We have descriptions down through verse 17 of what they are like and what they are teaching and then uh, their various uh, deceptions and the impact that it has on believers is described in in verse 18, uh, 18 down to verse 22. So that gives us an understanding of the overview. Now the structure of the section uh, that we are in in Second Peter uh, 2, 4 through 9, we've gone through the, th- the three historical examples. It starts with a conditional clause in verse 4, for if God did not spare the angels. And then the second example, verse 6, and if turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. So you have uh, the first example, verse 4, you don't have an if at 5, but that's the second example, sparing the ancient uh, ancient world uh, of Noah. Uh, you have these examples, and then he comes down to verse uh, 9 and then gives the result, the then clause. So it's a very, very long statement. So he's going to give the examples of the angels who sinned as an example of destruction and then the uh, destruction of the ancient world, then the destruction of the cities of Gomorrah and the deliverance of righteous lot but in there in the second example he he delivers he delivers noah so that's that's the structure and we've gone through all that in detail so now we can do another kind of analysis tonight to see why all of this is important what is god doing in all of this 
And so we have to go back and look at 2 Peter 2.6. This is the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. Remember, he rains fire and brimstone down, completely incinerates all of these uh, cities, and it just turns the whole landscape and everything into uh, just a horrible wasteland. Condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Now, as we look at that last word, ungodly, I want to say a couple of things about this. The two important words that we see in the passage are righteousness on the one hand and godly or ungodly on the other hand. Noah is a preacher of righteousness in verse 5. And God brings the flood on the world of the ungodly. So ungodly doesn't refer to believers who are living like unbelievers. It, it is a synonym for unbelievers. It is in contrast to, excuse me, to Noah and his family who are righteous. And so it's not talking about experiential righteousness. It is talking about imputed righteousness that they, Noah has imputed righteousness because he has trusted in God for, for salvation. The example of that in the Old Testament, which isn't used here, comes in Genesis 15.6, where Abraham believes God and God accounts it, imputes it to him as righteousness. So he is declared righteous. That is a, uh, the example of of imputation and what justification uh, by faith is, which brought something to mind. So I'm going to look the quote up here on my on my phone. I've been reading for the class on Thursday night a biography of Luther that came out a few years ago by Eric Metaxas. Some of you know who he is. He's written. Uh, several other books, wrote a, a good book I read a few years ago. I think the title of it was If They Can Keep It, which is the fra- uh, famous phrase of of um, Benjamin Franklin after coming out of the Constitutional Convention. We've given them a republic if they can keep it. And it's a great, uh, a great book. But uh, Metaxas, from what I've been told, is uh, comes from a Roman Catholic background, and he goes through a chapter where he deals with with Luther's explanation of where Luther finally comes to an understanding of what justification by faith alone is. Now, what he realizes is something that you've heard so many times that probably when I explain it, you check out and you think about something else because you have that down. But nobody at the time of Luther really understood this. And so after he gives a cogent quote from Luther, Metaxas explains it. And this is what he says. Once we embrace Christ, we are instantly made righteous. Now, that's the only fault I say. He doesn't say declared righteous. We don't, we don't have, he's not saying infused righteousness, but that's the only fault I have in what he says here. Uh, Because of his righteousness... So he, he recognizes that, that it is Christ's righteousness that is basis for our justification, and not because of anything we have done or could do. So our good works do not earn us God's favor. That favor we already possess, even though we are sinners who sin and cannot help sinning. By turning to God in faith, as sinners who understand that we are sinners, and by crying out to, for God's help, We do all we can by acknowledging our helplessness. At this point, in which our faith acknowledges the truth of our situation, we are instantly clothed with the righteousness of God, and it is now our gratitude to God for this free gift of his righteousness and salvation that makes us want to please him with our good works. We do them not out of grievous and legalistic duty or out of a hope to earn his favor, but out of a sheer gratitude for the favor we already have. 
Our service to him is redeemed and transmuted into a free servitude. Luther summed it up in this typically colorful image. You're going to love this. This is a great two-sentence statement that summarizes the significance that the, of the church as Paul is describing it in Ephesians. So this won't be the last time you hear this quote. Luther says, Is this not a joyous exchange? The rich, noble, pious bridegroom Christ takes this poor, despised, wicked little whore in marriage, redeems her of all evil, and adorns her with all his goods. That's the riches in Christ of Ephesians. Luther had a very earthy language and spoke to the people. So that's justification by faith. We don't are not made righteous in the sense that God changes us. We're declared righteous because we receive the righteousness of Christ. We're clothed in his righteousness. That's what we learned from Abraham. So when we look at this phrase righteous, it's contrasted with ungodly. So we know that what, what Peter's talking about is believer versus unbeliever. And he goes on to say at the in verse 6 here where he says, uh, talks about turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes for those who are ungodly. They're unbelievers. It's a judgment on them as unbelievers. But in verse 7, he delivers righteous lot. Now, when we look at Genesis, we don't see somebody who we would describe as righteous in their behavior. But we'll get to that verse in a, in a little bit. But he delivers righteous lot. So the, and righteous lot is contrasted in the rest of the verse, who is oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. So the wicked are unbelievers, contextually. For that righteous man, again, Peter refers to him as one who, is, uh, who has imputed righteousness, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul. Why is it righteous? Because it's clothed in the righteousness uh, uh, that God has imputed to him. Uh, Tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of testing. So godly there refers to believers. So we, we recognize we're dealing with unbelievers versus believers. So what's going on here? Well, the, those who are uh, ungodly here, the unbelievers, are being made an example, which is a weak translation. It's accurate, okay, it's a, it's a good translation in one sense, but you don't get the point from this in the English so what we see here is that in 2 Peter 2, the word for example is hupa degma, which can be an example, just as you would say to your uh, children or your grandchildren when you see somebody get appropriate punishment, see, learn from that lesson, that, let that be an example to you. But this is more than that. Uh, so it it can have the meaning of example or evidence. When you look at Scripture, there are several words that are translated as example, but they have different nuances, different senses, even though they're all translated with the same English word. But this particular word uh, is used in the sense of a legal testimony, that's what's going on here. And, and you, you get this when you look at the root word, degma, which is only used one time in the New Testament, and that's in Jude 7, which is a parallel passage. As we've talked about many times going through this, Jude and Peter are talking about very close things. They each give three examples. We'll look at that in a minute. And one of them is different in each one. But in Jude 7, Jude uses Sodom and Gomorrah as an example. 
and says, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as a degma, as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal life. So when we look at what's going on here, we see that both of them are emphasizing this, so we have to understand uh, what the significance is. What, in what sense are they an example? So this first word, degma, is used in... These are the various meanings listed in the uh, lexicon for uh, as it was used in, classical, in the time of classical Greek says uh, sample, pattern, paradigm, which is good because it's picked out as one example that, that teaches us about all of the other examples. So it is uh, paradigmatic in that sense. Uh, plan, proof, proof in the sense of legal proof, legal evidence offered in a court of law, uh, legal evidence and that is how it is used here. It is used as an example, a legal example, a legal proof demonstrating something about God's righteous judgments. And so in Jude, Jude uses three examples. Three, let me change the term. Jude uses three illustrations from the Old Testament that demonstrate God's righteous judgment. So these are the legal examples, the legal proofs that are being brought forth, as it were, in a court of law. Now, the reason I'm, I'm bringing this out is because you have often heard me and you've heard others talk about the fact that human history is laid out by God uh, according to uh, a, a legal concept. I just explained justification. Justification is a legal word to declare uh, justified in a court of law. That is why in good technical theology it is referred to as forensic justification. Now all of you should be familiar with the word forensic. If you've watched anything from CSI Las Vegas, CSI New York, NCIS, whatever city they're in, uh, law and order shows, everybody should know that forensic has something to do with the courtroom. And so this is talking about forensic justification. I First time I heard that, I was in a class in seminary where I had was told at the opening day when we went through the syllabus, you're going to write a paper on forensic justification. I went, huh? What's that? Well, that is the, that's the historic term. So all these terms, redemption, forgiveness is the canceling of a debt. Uh, words like you've heard like expiation, words like atonement, cleansing, all these different words are all used in a court of law to describe different things. Confession is used in a court of law. So we see that uh, all the, all through uh, our understanding of salvation, all these key terms all relate to something happening in a legal courtroom. And so there's something about human history that is being explained to us in the Scripture on the analogy of a court. So we're going to come back to that. But So there's evidence that's being presented in a courtroom. And the first piece of, well, I'm going to change the terminology, it's evidence, but the first piece of, the first illustration and piece of legal evidence is how God dealt with the unbelieving Egyptians whose lives were taken at the first Passover. And uh, there was not a, um, all of the Egyptians uh, that uh, the firstborn died, and um, what the unbelieving Jew comment there uh, is is wrong. No Jew died. Not a single Jew died. Every Jew applied the blood, and we know that from from uh, historic uh, from uh, evidence from the scriptures. 
No Jew died at the first Passover, but that is an evidence of God's judgment on the unbelievers in Egypt and destroyed their, uh, their culture. Second, angels who did not keep their proper domain. So this is talking about a group of fallen angels. Third, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that were uh, destroyed by fire. And what's interesting is when you look at these three uh, lines of evidence, the second and the third both involved angels. Jude 14, which comes a few verses later, Jude says, Now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. That's the King James translation. Most modern translations are more accurate. They translate it as holy ones because it's not talking about humans. It's talking about angels. So angels are part of whatever is going on in terms of this legal demonstration. Then the second word, the word that we have in Second Peter is hupadegma. Hupadegma means example or evidence, but it also has this idea of testimony and uh, demonstrations. So it is, again, talking about the same thing that degma is. It has a hupa uh, prepositional pre- uh, prefix, which intensifies the meaning, but it has the same idea. It's a legal demonstration of the righteous judgment of God in history. And so we have the three examples given in Peter. We have the judgment on the angels who sinned. That's the same as what we have in Jude. The judgment on the angels who sinned, 2 Peter 2.4. Then we have the destruction of the world's population in Noah's flood, which is different. What the, the example in, in Jude had to do with the Passover. The example of the flood has to do with, with uh, Noah and then the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we have uh, the, the judgment on the angels who sinned. They're the ones who sinned at the time of Noah. So you have those two different examples, but you see angels are involved in uh, all three of these examples that, that Peter uses. Now, we've run across these words somewhere else. So now this is what we call doing theology. First you exegete in Ephesians, then you exegete in Second Peter, and then you discover there's a section that relates to each other, and you, after you've truly understood what each of those epistles are saying, then you go to the next level and you start to build your theology. The trouble with a lot of people is they have a theological grid and they read it into the passages because they don't know how to exegete. And even people who do know how to exegete fall into that trap, and that's that's a, a big error. In Ephesians 3.10, we just taught this a few weeks ago. In Ephesians 3.10, where uh, Paul is talking about this new revelation that God has given to him, the mystery of the church, never before revealed, but now is to be made known to, uh, uh, to the church. And this is uh, then further developed in verse 10, where this revelation to the church, to Jew and Gentile, is for a second purpose, to the intent that now, now in this church age, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So we took quite a bit of time, if you remember, to go back and review the angelic revolt. Now, what we're doing here is we're just uh, substantiating things that I said when looking at the angelic revolt. So the phrase might be made known here is a general word, norizo, to make known, and it is uh, used in some places as a, with a more narrow meaning, 
which fits with hupadigma and digma as to make known, to demonstrate as evidence, as legal evidence. And so the ones who make this known to these angels, to the ranks of the angels, are the church. It's made known by the church. That's what we're doing. We are set forth as legal evidence, as illustrations and as legal proof of the righteousness of God and the grace of God to teach about the manifold wisdom of God uh, to the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. So we are... The angels are watching us, and they're learning things about God by the way God deals with the church that they can't learn any other way. And we are exhibit B. Exhibit A was Israel in the Old Testament. Exhibit B is the church age. And it wasn't plan B because God knew all along that Israel would reject Christ as Messiah, and he always had uh, the plan of the church ready to go. So in Ephesians 2 7, after Paul has talked about the fact that all the Gentiles are born dead in their trespasses and sins, all the Jews are also dead in their trespasses and sins, but God has what? Made us alive together, raised us together, and seated us together in the heavenly places in Christ. So that's our position in Christ. Why? That, the purpose for this, is that in the ages to come, he might show. Well, that's our verb. It's not hupadigma. It is endeknumi, which is based on the same, same verb. It means to show forth or to demonstrate a truth, to prove something, or to give a, an exhibit in a law case. So now what, what did we learn? We're, we're learning that God's righteous judgment in four different examples, four different illustrations of the Old Testament are demonstrating God's righteous judgment. And in um, all but one of those, the angels are definitely involved. They're not involved as far as we can see, as far as Revelation tells us, with the, with the Passover event. A lot of people think there's an angel of death. That's what the Talmud said. It's not what the Bible says. So just, you know, if you watch Ten Commandments, you picked up something false when the angel of death comes and Ten Commandments was on Saturday night. Uh, after I, One time I taught Exodus, and afterwards the, the test was who can come up with the most biblical errors in the film. Do that with your kids sometime. Uh, it's a good good way to learn some things and pay attention to what's going on. But there's no angel of death in Exodus. It's God who is the subject of the, uh, of the one who comes and takes the life of the, first, of the firstborn. So all of this, is that's designed to show God's righteous judgment. And in Ephesians 2, 7, it's to show the wealth of his grace. That's Martin Luther's decking out this... Uh, whore that the God, Christ has taken for a, a bride and he has completely uh, decked her out in beautiful clothes and changed everything. So that's what's going on here. That's the evidence. And if you go through Ephesians as we did, it's for the praise of the glory of God's grace. It shows the riches of his of the glory of the inheritance of the saints, what we have, what we possess in Ephesians 1.18. Uh, it shows the exceeding greatness of his power to be able to transform us like that and to provide all this for us. It shows the working of his omnipotence, 119. It shows that God is rich in mercy in 2.4. And it shows his great love with which he loved us in the second part of 2.4 and his grace in 2.5 and much, much more. So Ephesians focuses on what God is teaching in a positive way, the evidence of his mercy, the evidence of his love, the evidence of his grace that is uh, demonstrated as legal evidence through the church. In Peter and Jude, 
It's the flip side. It's demonstrating the righteous judgment of God on those who have rejected his, his grace. And Ephesians 2, 7 says that in the ages to come, so throughout all eternity, this legal evidence is put on display in probably on the earth in the new Jerusalem for all to see and learn from throughout the future. Now, Ephesians 3.10 says that all of this was to uh, be evidence for the principalities and powers, terms that are talking about different ranks of angels, both fallen and unfallen. So it is set forth as evidence to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. So now we come to verse 7. Verse 7 says that God delivered righteous Lot. Remember the point from verse 9 is God knows how to deliver the, the godly out of testing and to reserve the unjust or the unsaved under punishment. So we looked at the punishment in verse 6 and the deliverance is stated in verse 7. And just a couple of things to point out there. God delivered righteous Lot. He is righteous not because of his behavior, he is righteous because he has been declared righteous on the basis of his, uh, of his faith, by means of faith. And this is uh, the important aspect of, of all of this. Now, one of the things we ought to think about here is give a little, little thought to this. Here's Lot. Remember the situation that uh, his, his uh, cowboys... And shepherds were fighting with Abraham's cowboys and shepherds, and they have a lot of them, and they can't get along. So Abraham says, we've got to separate. But being a grace-oriented, mature believer, he offers Lot whatever part of the land he wants to, to have. And so Lot looks out there, and he sees, oh, the cities of the plains, and they have... A lot of social life down there, and that's where all the action is, and it's a well-watered place. It's beautiful. So he looks at all the surface, all the surface things, just like a modern 21st century American does. They look at the surface. They look at the superficial and make their decisions on that basis. And so he does, and he goes down there, and this is some of the... Uh, worst, most perverted groups of people. They are into every kind of uh, sexually perverted sins, and he's living there. And here's a believer living in the midst of everything that is that they're against. And what Second Peter two seven says is that he is oppressed by this conduct. He is oppressed by the licentious or lewd behavior of the wicked. And the word oppressed means to be distressed or to be anxious or to be anguished. So his soul cannot make him, doesn't make him comfortable. He just can't ever get comfortable living there with all of this that is going on around us. And what this points out is a very important principle and very important question that all of us need to constantly ask ourselves because we live in a world that is, that is in competition with Sodom and Gomorrah to see who can be more perverted. And it's all around us. It's in books. It's in the newspapers. It, you can hardly watch anything on TV, uh, even the commercials. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, there'd be commercials that would come on even in the 60s, and I, I you know, it was embarrassing. I didn't want, I, I, I just, you know, I didn't want to have that brought up, and now it's even worse. I, I think if I were a parent, I wouldn't even have commercial television. But you just, you're exposed to this, and it, it, it should, should make us uncomfortable. We watch films, we watch TV shows, and what happens? It is easy for us to become desensitized to the conduct of the unbelieving world around us. And there are too many believers who 
are living in this very affluent world with so many options and so many opportunities and so much entertainment. And it's very subtle the way the world works on us in its attractions. But the world is hostile to God. Remember what James says, friendship with the world is hostility to God. Think about that. Think about what that means. Friendship with the dominant mode of thinking in the world, the value system of the world, justifying it in any way is hostility to God. And so the world is extremely anti-God and anti-Christian. It doesn't have to be very blatant and in your face. It is a lot of times for it to make inroads into the believer's life and priorities. We get sucked in just as Eve got sucked in by the, by the serpent. And it's not long before believers begin to think like the world does, well, it's not so bad, and we have to, you know, we can just kind of put part of it out of our mind we, without um, getting sucked into all of the other stuff, and we excuse it, and we justify it. And before long, we're not bothered or upset by some things as, as we should be. So when these things are going on around us in our culture that the Bible says are lewd or lascivious or immoral, if it doesn't trouble us, if it doesn't make us uncomfortable, then maybe we're not as spiritually sensitive as Lot was, and he's no pattern of spiritual sensitivity. So that's a, that's a tough lesson for all of us to, to pay attention to. In Second Peter 2.8, we read, For that righteous man dwelling among them, tormented or tortured, his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. This really bothered him. But when it came time to leave, he's like, no, 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 I'm not going to leave. So what happens is that when we are surrounded in the midst of all of this paganism and immorality and licentiousness and all this horrible stuff, and it creeps into our lives, it creeps into our homes, and every kind of corruption is there, and we gradually are desensitized, and we become indifferent to it, and it's not long before we are uh, accepting of it. Alexander Pope, in his work, Essays in Man, says, Vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated, as to be hated needs but to be seen, yet seen too often, Familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. That is an important warning that we can easily get sucked into this. The key lesson in all of this is verse 9. Then the Lord knows how. That's what all these legal examples are to demonstrate that God in his righteousness is also gracious. He knows how to deliver the godly out of testing. 1 Corinthians 10.13, there is no temptation, there's no testing. It's the same word, perosmos, there's no testing taken you, but such as is common to man, not in every detail, but in all of the categories and classifications. There, the, the, it's all common to man, but God will, with the testing, make a way to escape, not so you can avoid it, but so that you can endure it. And as I said the other night, that is because God has given us the riches in Christ. All of these assets, whether you're aware of it or not, they're yours, they're mine. They are ours to depend on, to learn about, to use, so that we can endure whatever these tests are that are going on around us. And it doesn't mean that God's not going to uh, test you beyond your ability and that if you're going through it that it's a vote of confidence from God that you can handle it because God has already given us everything we need to be able to handle it. And so whatever happens... We, it's to test us, to give us the opportunity to apply doctrine. It's the testing of your faith. That is the doctrine in your soul. 
according to uh, James 1, uh, 2, and 3. So the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of testing and reserve the unjust, the unbeliever, under punishment, that is, under condemnation. He, we're, the unbeliever, after death, goes into, uh, go, goes into torments, which is like a holding cell. It's like being sent to jail before you go to court and the final verdict is passed, and then you go to, your, then you go to prison. Prison, in this case, is going to be the lake of fire. And then we come to verse 10. And especially those who walk according to the flesh. Now, this isn't talking about believers. This is talking about unbelievers. That's the context. Uh, Those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. What was Satan's original sin? He rejected the authority of God, and he wanted to have that authority for himself. So they reject authority, despise authority. They are presumptuous and self-willed. They are not to. Uh, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, and by that he's referring to even uh, the powers of the demons, the the uh, demonic uh, principalities and powers. Verse eleven. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might. Do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Now, the parallel to this is what we find over in in Jude. And Jude tells us something that is not revealed in the Old Testament, and it refers to what happened uh, when Moses died. And so if uh, if we're in Jude, then we read of the example... In verses uh, 8 and 9, likewise also these dreamers, there's referring to the false teachers that are there by that time, defile the flesh, reject authority, and we have the same phrase, they speak evil of dignitaries. Yet, and the illustration of this is in verse 9, yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses. So now we learn that Moses went up on Mount Nebo and he died and his corpse is up there because there wasn't anybody to bury him. And so Michael is there uh, watching over his body and protecting it from the devil who wished to defile it. And so uh, the illustration is that not even Michael, when he disputed with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a reviling accusation against him. So you see all of these crazy television evangelists are into all these deliverance ministries and they're stomping on the devil and punching the devil and making all of these idiotic reviling accusations against the devil, they are demonstrating that that they don't understand anything according to these passages. That Michael is the one who's under the, recognizes he's under the authority of God and he calls upon the Lord to rebuke the devil. So this is all part of this pattern of what is to be discovered in what is taught by these by these false teachers. So we'll come back next time and start into the next section in verse 12, uh, going down where we start looking at the details, the characteristics of what these false teachers are teaching. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to recognize that living in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation We are the ones that are to be a light. We're to illuminate. We are not to be influenced and seduced by uh, the darkness that surrounds us, but we are to illuminate it. And the way to illuminate it for us begins with your word, that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It illuminates where we are going. It doesn't illuminate our eyes. It illuminates the path, the direction that we should go. And Father, we pray that we might be faithful in 
reading your word, studying your word, internalizing your word, that it may be our protection against that which is going on in the culture around us and that we may not get seduced by it, that we may not uh, uh, get to the point where we are indifferent to it, but that we would continue to recognize and to resist the influences and the attraction and the and pass the test of being surrounded by this evil. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.